So we're going to talk about hope this morning. We've been doing a short three weeks. This is the third week of a three-week series, uh, Advent series. Um, the first week, just by quick review, was about joy, where we learned that joy and happiness are essentially the same thing. And that uh, the norm, the default mode for the Christian should be joy. doesn't mean you're never sad, but it's just that sadness is a stranger. Sadness is an, an invader into what should otherwise be a joyous existence. And we, should, and we talked all about that in the first week. Um, so we fight for joy, we wrestle for it, and it was for the joy set before Christ that he died for you. So joy is actually a super big deal. Okay, It's not a secondary thing, it's a, it's a central thing. And then the second week we talked about peace, that was last week. We saw that peace is wholeness, harmony, uh, it's a debt being perfectly paid, it's a deep and satisfied confidence that God has everything in hand and it's all going to work together for our good. That's peace. We talked about that last week. And I, I, it's not lost on me that when we talk about those kinds of things, there's a lot of what I call the yeah buts. Which is, okay, sounds great, preacher, uh, telling me that I should be happy all the time and at peace all the time and that not being that way is not normal. Well, Color me not normal, right? You, 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 we often have long seasons of life, sometimes years, where those things are elusive to us. And so what do we, what do, we do with that? The, we, we can talk about God's standard, the truth about what God declares over us, but then we have this, always have this gap between our experience and what God declares over us. It's always true. So what do we do with those in between places. Well, I think that's where hope comes in, okay? And so uh, I just want to say that I have been uh, not looking forward to this. I'm kidding, not looking forward to this sermon. That's my hope joke. Um, it'll dawn on you in a minute why that's hilarious. But um, what is hope? That's the big question. Hope is, we often think of hope as something you, you want to happen, but you think probably won't. Like a hope Ben sermon is not too long. Right, you just, like wishful thinking, like like positive thinking. I'm just gonna put positive vibes out there, and then good stuff's gonna come to me because I'm just believing, right? And we we put weird things on bumper stickers and T-shirts and on the back of gym shorts for some reason, like the word like believe, or we talk about positive thinking or positive confessions and singing just just think positive thoughts. Right, because we don't want to. People don't talk about prayer anymore. They talk about positive thoughts, and that is not actually what the Bible talks about as hope. It's a whole different thing. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is the confident expectation and desire for something good in the future, but it also involves this word waiting. Especially in the Old Testament, every word that's translated as hope. Often it's also translated as wait or waiting. And it's not just a passive kind of sitting around waiting for the line to move at the DMV, right? It's not that kind of waiting. It's a tense. It's like a bungee cord being pulled, stretched to its right before its limit when it snaps. That kind of tension, that expectant 
waiting for something great to happen that you don't just want to happen like something good under the Christmas tree on Christmas morning, but the kind of waiting and hoping for something that you desperately need. In the Bible, it's always the idea of rescue or redemption. I'm in desperate need to be redeemed. I'm in desperate need for rescue. Things are bad for me, and I'm hoping, I'm waiting in tension and anticipation for my rescue that I cannot provide for myself. That's so it's not, it's not this rosy idea of positive thinking. I'm just going to hope for the best. It's all going to be fine. Everything's fine. Your voice goes up like three octaves. That's how you know it's not fine when you say it's fine. That's, that's how it is in the South. How do you know it's not fine when somebody says it's fine? Like that feeling of desperate need for someone to rescue you from the situation you cannot get out of yourself. And if no one comes then you're doomed. That's the biblical idea of hope. In fact, as you read your Old Testament, most of the time, at least in the verses I read, when you see these Hebrew words for hope, it's waiting. When you see the word wait, you should automatically think hope. All right? The Bible does not talk about hoping for things that are uncertain. That's the other thing about hope. It's not just hoping for something that's not going to happen. In the Bible, it's hoping for things that are certain to happen because they're guaranteed by God. It does not say, for example, God may or may not be faithful, but let's hope he is. It also doesn't say God may not be powerful enough, but I hope he is. Or God may not be good enough, but I sure hope he is. That is not a biblical concept of hope. Hope is we hope for things that are in God and they are certain. Hope is waiting, intense anticipation for something to happen that has been promised. So there's a promise. I'm going to look at this theme in a second. There's a promise. Then there's the hope, the waiting for the fulfillment of that promise when it comes. All right? And that's a repeated pattern. So what I want to do is I want to cram your gullet as full of Scripture this morning as I can. Just pour it down your throat, and you just take in as much as you can, all right? Because I think that's where we're going we're gonna to end up by saying, this is how you get hope, is you tell yourself the truth. In the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of the waiting, you tell yourself to wait some more. This is what we do for each other, and this is what we do for ourselves. So let's start way back in Noah's day, Noah's hope in Genesis 8, 6 through 12. I'm going to move fast through these scriptures. They should be on your screen. I'm putting Scott to work this morning with all the scriptures. There's also notes if you want to have these to kind of refer to in the back if you want them. And if you're online, there should be a link in the description to that. So I want want you to notice the theme of waiting and 40 days, which is going to be a theme. 40 days, um, starting in verse 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. 
And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Now, if you're confused by all that dove, raven, flying around business, okay, the story is the world is the sin in humanity has escalated to a level where God cannot abide it anymore. And so he wipes it out with a flood except for Noah and his family. At the end of that flood, Noah's got to find, a, he's got to find out, like, is the flood over? Is there a place for us to, is there a dry place for us to get out of this boat? And his method for doing that is first to send a raven out, and the raven looks around and comes back with nothing. Then he sends out a dove. The dove comes back first with an olive branch saying there's something living out there somewhere, but not a dry enough place for the dove to nest. Then he sends the dove, he waits. In between each one he waits. There's that theme of waiting. Then he sends the dove out again, and the dove does not return. And so just imagine for a minute, if you're Noah and his family, you've been in this nasty boat for 40 days. Confined, I mean... You may love your family, I love my family, but I don't want to be stuck on a boat with them for 40 days, along with my zoo of animals. I, don't, I need to be able to get out of the house. It's been 40 days. And imagine the feeling of knowing there's something out there. You've gotten an olive branch back. You know there's something out there, but you don't know if it's enough. If it's, is it time yet? Is this torture over this is no picnic god thanks for the rescue you know from the flood but this is awful like it's from the frying pan into the fire as we say right get me off of this boat and i'm waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and we've let the bird go and it hasn't come back it hasn't come back and finally you realize that's a good sign there's dry land Let's move forward by a lot of years to Simeon in Luke chapter 2. This is one of my favorite parts of the Christmas story. But before we read this, you need to kind of have some context here from Leviticus 12. I'm not going to read it. Um, but Leviticus 12, 1 through 8, specifies that a woman who has a male child must wait a total of 40 days. Interestingly, right? 40 days, and then go to the priest to do a sacrifice with a lamb. If she doesn't have a lamb, she's to bring two turtle doves. Two doves with her to sacrifice for her own sin, for ritual cleansing, and as a blessing over her child, newborn child. Okay? That was a law, Levitical law. Okay? Now, now that you know that, Luke 2 will make more sense. Luke 2, verses 22, it says... And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, that's Leviticus 12, they brought him, him being Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. So Simeon waits and hopes, same idea, for, we don't know how long, but for years presumably, maybe his whole life, maybe as a child God told him, you're going to see the Messiah with your own two eyes. And he had been praying and waiting. This was what his life was about. This one simple, just identifying the Messiah. That's what his life was for because he dies after this. Then Jesus is born, but Simeon must wait another 40 days. So here's a guy who his whole life is about just seeing the Messiah come to Israel. And he's hanging out, doing whatever Simeon does during the day. And while he's doing this, Jesus is born somewhere else. And these shepherds get told, these pagan wise men from another land get told, and they're all there at the manger, right, hanging out. They get to see the little baby Jesus, right? And they're like, wow, the king is born, and the music's playing, and the children are singing and fidgeting. Where's Simeon? He has no idea. He's not there. He missed the party. God makes Simeon wait for exactly 40 days. Just like Noah, just like the law said. And then 40 days in, he goes to the temple and he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Why is the Holy Spirit driving me to the temple today? Why am I coming here? Just another day of being disappointed and missing the thing that God promised me he would do. And I'm getting old. I'm at the end of my life. And he walks in the temple and across the courtyard, he sees a couple carrying a baby. Probably Joseph carrying a thing of two turtle doves. The symbol of hope in the scripture. And Mary carrying this bundle and somehow by the spirit he knows this is the Christ. And he goes over and he's the first one to prophesy over Jesus that he is the Messiah. And he says, I'm done, I can die now. So for us, 40 days are always spent waiting in anticipation for our redemption. This is what we do. But then we have John the Baptist. So move ahead a few years into Jesus' life. He's into his adulthood. He's about to start his public ministry. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, born just before Jesus. John has been preaching repentance, and he's gathered a crowd, quite a crowd. A lot of controversy with John the Baptist. He's a little nuts. He's loud. He's obnoxious, but he's right. We never know what to do with those people in the church, do we? Luke chapter 3, 15 and 16 says, As the people were in expectation, same word for hope, 
in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then verse 21, if you jump down, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So John baptized Jesus, and the Holy Spirit visibly comes down from the sky, visibly, bodily, physically, seen by everyone, and looks like a dove. Interestingly, Jesus is then, straight from there, is led out into the wilderness by that same Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan and to overcome the temptation and not sin. And guess how long that was? Forty days. So that means for us, the 40 days is waiting, intense anticipation, maybe frustration. But for Jesus, that 40 days is 40 days of overcoming what we cannot overcome. Led out there by the dove himself. While we wait, Jesus is busy overcoming on our behalf. There's another interesting 40 days in the New Testament. It was 40 days from the resurrection of Jesus to his ascension, which is kind of cool. If you just count up the days, lots of Bible nerds have done this. And it's 40 days. It's a theme. This season of waiting, though, when Jesus ascended, was going to be a little different because we are now in a season of waiting, are we not? We have been promised his return, and we're waiting. And we all feel it. When the bad news comes on the news, what do we always say? Maranatha, Lord Jesus. We feel the tension, the bungee cord pulling just a little tighter. When your body stops working the way it should, what do you say? Maranatha, Lord Jesus, I just feel the tension. When things don't work the way they should, when relationships don't work the way they should, when our attitudes are wrong, when the weather's not good, when, when we're sinned against, when we sin against others, what do we feel? We feel the tension, the cord pulled even tighter. I'm waiting Where are you? But this season of waiting, biblically speaking, is different. 1 Peter, you knew I was going to read this eventually. It's our name, Living Hope. 1 Peter 1, 1, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's coming. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, the tension. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor to 
to the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter says that we're now in another season of hope, a season of expectant waiting. Waiting for something to be revealed in the last time, but he says right now you have a living hope. The living hope is not for later. The living hope is for right now. It's not just a hope like they had in the Old Testament. It's a living hope. What does that mean? Jesus. Jesus is our living hope. He's present. We don't wait alone waiting for Jesus to come. We wait with Jesus who has already overcome. At Pentecost, the same spirit that descended onto Jesus at his baptism descended on the church, but this time not in the, what looked like a dove. It's what looked like fire, because John the Baptist said he will baptize you with fire. It's a whole different ballgame. Our hope is no longer only in a promise. It's in a living and present hope. So I want to read quickly. I told you I'm going to read these pretty fast, quick fire through Hebrews. This is your survey of the book of Hebrews. Four scriptures that connect hope with faith. Because you can't talk about hope and not talk about faith. It's just not a thing. You can't. They're connected. Hebrews 6, 11 through 12, speaking of perseverance in their faith, he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. Love that. Sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Chapter 10, 21 through 23, talking about Jesus as the great high priest, he says, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised... Is faithful. And then the classic chapter 1 of, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 11 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for or waited for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is the assurance that the redemption you're waiting for is coming one day in the future. The thing that you're waiting for, the thing you're hoping for, that redemption that, that's coming. Faith is the assurance that that's going to happen, not because you believe really hard, but because of who you believe in. It's not about the strength or the veracity of your faith, how much you believe. It's about who you believe in. It's the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. You can have a mustard seed of faith. It doesn't matter because it's not your faith. It's who you have faith in. Just like the power of prayer is not in your words. You think you're, you're all that? That's just paganism. If I say the right words, the right holy words, in the right order, with the right tone, then the magic portal will open. Is that what we believe? No, we believe it's who you pray to. It's his power, not yours. That was a tangent, I think, but chapter 11, verse 13 through 16, it says, these all died in faith, talking about the cloud of witnesses, those who have suffered and gone before us. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. 
but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, I mean, looking back, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Faith is looking at the thing that you do not have, the thing you hope for, the thing you wait for, and greeting it from a distance as though it's already here. That's faith. Faith and hope put together is what pleases God. And when we do that, he says, boy, I'm not ashamed to call you my God. You're my kids. We're in the same family. So what do we do when hope is lost? What do we do when we lack hope? When we're unwilling to wait anymore? When we're not waiting in faith, we're waiting because we're forced to and we have no no other option. What do we do there when we're just losing hope? Because, you know, even talking about hope when you've lost it and you've really lost it is irritating. I'm irritating some of you right now. That bright, sparkly person is the person you don't want to see when you're angry. You want to see somebody else who's a little melancholy just like you so you can commiserate in your misery. You don't want the preacher to get up and talk about hope. People say they do, but you don't. Because it's costly. It hurts. Hope is tension. It's waiting. It's saying, I don't have all that's been promised to me. It's Abraham who says, God promised me uh, an inheritance that is numerous as the stars in the sky, and he died before he saw it. That's hope. It's painful and it's difficult. But you need it. It's vital, just like joy just like peace, just like food. You need hope. So I'm going to give you three things. I'm trying to keep this short and practical. One is admit, two is draw near, three is preach. They're all taken from the scriptures I've read to you this morning. By admit, I mean when Job had his life destroyed. Do you remember our friend Job? One of the things he said that, for me, is the high point of the whole book. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet, I will argue my ways to his face. Isn't that awesome? I mean, let's put that on a bumper sticker. Yet, though he slay me, so he puts the sword in God's hand, all the misery and trouble in his life, even though we know Satan did it in the story, Job gets it right. He puts the sword in God's hand and says, he slays, though he slay me, I will hope in him. But you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I'm going to argue my ways to his face. And he does it. He tells God, I trust in you, I'll wait in you, I'll hope, I'll hope in you. All I have is you, but I'm really not happy with the situation. Hoping in God does not mean that you do not argue your ways to his face. Hope drives you to speak to God 
honestly. Where else are you going to go? Right? Again, hope is when you're waiting for the thing that you cannot do for yourself. You're waiting for God to save your kids. Waiting for God to save your parents. Waiting for God to rescue you from some burdening sin that you just can't disentangle yourself from. Waiting for God to fill in a weakness that is really messing up your life. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Where else are you going to go but to him? Number two, drawing near. Hebrews 10, I read it, and really the entire Bible implies that it's hard for humans to hold on to hope. This is hard. It kind of goes right through your fingers like water. It comes and it goes. It's sometimes by the minute. <laughs> your willingness to wait on God for the things you really need. It so easily slips out of our grip. The prescription for this in Hebrews 10 is to draw near, and that drawing near is drawing near to each other before God. God's not out of the picture. He's part of it, but it's not just drawing near to God in your prayer closet by yourself. It's drawing near together to God in worship. So it's not just the coming together. It's coming together with the eyes of our hearts trained on Jesus in worship. When we worship together and we all come together and look at him, hope restores that's why some of us avoid that a lot. It's because you know what's going to happen when you draw together, draw near together and worship God. You're going to have to let go of the cynicism and the bitterness and the frustration and you're going to have to start waiting again. And you don't really feel like waiting, so you avoid that in your heart. And third, preach. And by preach, I mean preach to yourself. Psalm 42 teaches us a great lesson. It has taught me a tremendous lesson in my life. It teaches us what to do when hope is slipping away. This is what the psalmist does. The psalmist here is separated from his people and feels separated from God as the result, which is also very interesting. He complains passionately to God, like Job. I'll argue my case to his face. But then, two times, there's this stanza where he talks to himself, and he says, Psalm 42, 5 through 6, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He talks to himself. Some of you talk to yourself, and people think you're a little crazy, but you're not. It's a godly thing to do. I love... Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on this verse. He's written a book about it, which is a wonderful book if you don't mind people who talk highfalutin, which I love. I'm going to read you some of it. There's a long section on it. I'm just going to read you an excerpt. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones talking, who struggled with depression himself, and he's talking about this verse and that specific phrase. He says, the main art in the matter of spiritual living, is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? 
You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. And then, having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself, defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world, and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the help of my countenance and my God. That's the attitude, right? So you look at yourself like the psalmist does, and say, what are you doing? Hope in God! Wait on him. Wait some more. And this is what we should do for each other. This is what we do when we draw near together, each other. What we should be doing is looking at each other in one way or the other and say, wait some more. Wait a little longer. It won't be long now, friends. You'll see him again. Just a little longer. Just wait. And maybe your redemption will come now. You're, you're saving, you're, maybe tomorrow you'll wake up and this won't be a problem for you and God will solve it. Or maybe he'll wait until he comes back to solve it, but either way, it won't be long now. Just wait, hold on, hold on, hope in God. He said, well, what do I do in the meantime? Worship him. That's what he says. I'll just worship God. I'll stand here and I'll say, yet though you slay me, I will hope in you. If you need another place to go to preach to yourself, I recommend Psalm 130 through 131. Also Romans 8, just the whole chapter. Just read it. Just read it over and over again. It's a, if you don't know how to preach to yourself, if that's a new idea, <laughs> I preach all the time so it comes easy. Actually, it doesn't. It's easy to preach to you. It's hard to preach to myself. It's one of the great things about the Bible is you don't have to Figure out what to say to yourself. You just open it up, Psalm 130, and just read it and go, oh, here he is again, the psalmist. He's mad, he's upset, but he keeps coming back to hope in God. Just hope in God. I'll wait a little longer, over and over again. So why don't we stand up? I want to pray for you for that. And then we're going to do a, sing a couple of songs together. We're going to do what we just talked about. <laughs> At least I'm going to encourage you to do what we just talked about. So let's take a minute to preach to ourselves. Amen. Holy Spirit, we just invite you now to remind us those simple words that the psalmist declared, which is hope in God. Wait, intense expectation. Not for hope that is far off, but hope that is living and present. God, we confess to you that our hope is in Christ, in Christ alone. Not only for the forgiveness of our sin, and not only for securing our eternal future, but for our present need, every single one of them, 
We wait on him. So Jesus, we just lean over onto you right now. We just have this picture in my head of us just leaning over and laying on his shoulder. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us do that right now. Because that is where we find joy. That is where we find peace. And that's where we find hope. God, I pray for everyone in the room who has lost their hope. And they've lost it so so deeply that it's hard for them to imagine having it back. Things like what I'm saying feel like salt on the wound to them. God, I pray that you would minister to that hard-hearted place. The inability to believe that you are not just that you are present, but also that you are present in their future. God, I pray that you would soften their heart right now, restore their hope. God, not in some fanciful, wishful thinking, but in the true words of Scripture. That you are faithful and good and loving and sovereign and powerful and loving. You are forever faithful, not just to everyone else, but to them. Personally, you are faithful to them. God, restore their hope, and that that hope would be rooted in you right now. God, help us right now to worship you with open hearts as we draw near, just as Hebrews tells us to do, we draw near to each other in unity to worship you. In the name of Jesus, amen.